Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. In Ontario, Premier Doug Ford is trying to address the province's healthcare crisis. With over 200,000 people waiting for surgeries, long emergency room wait times, too few family physicians, and nurses burning out and leaving the profession, something must be done. But Ford's plan is to introduce more for-profit care into the system. He calls it innovation. It's been done in other provinces. It won't solve the crisis, but it might introduce new problems. Saving healthcare in Ontario and Canada requires structural changes to preserve and extend the public and not-for-profit elements of the system. And don't let anyone tell you it can't be done. It can. There are best practices. We just need to adopt them at scale. So how do we fix Canadian healthcare? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Melanie Bouchard, a pediatric emergency doctor and chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Let's start with talking about what Ford's proposed changes actually are, since there's there's some confusion and and misrepresentation, and I want to tear them apart, but I want to tear them apart as they are. So, So what is Ford proposing here? Okay, so Premier Ford is proposing essentially contracting out some surgeries and procedures that would otherwise take place in hospitals into private for-profit standalone clinics. So I think it's really important before we delve in further to get into a little bit of a primer about what private healthcare actually means. Because saying something is private is such a broad term that it's almost useless. It gives me no idea about what we're actually proposing. So whenever we're talking about healthcare, there's two dimensions to keep in mind. One is financing, which is who pays for the care, and the other is delivery, which is who actually delivers the care. And for both of these, they can either be private or public. So when you have publicly financed care, that's care that's covered essentially by the government. So care uh, financed by our provincial and territorial health plans. If I go into the hospital, I have appendicitis, I have an OHIP card, that allows that care to be paid for. You can also have privately financed care, which we actually have a lot of in Canada. 30% of our health spending is from private sources. So this is either from private insurance companies or from out of pocket. So if I go say, have an eye exam, a lot of the time I have to pay for that out of pocket or I rely on private insurance to help cover it. Same thing with dental care, same thing with a lot of mental health care in this country. So that comes to the financing of care. When we look at delivery of care, We essentially look at whether or not it's public, so delivered in government institutions by government employees or private, which is essentially everything else. And we actually have a lot of private delivery of healthcare in Canada. In Ontario, most hospitals are private nonprofit institutions, meaning that they're not associated with the government. As a physician working in the hospital, I'm actually an independent contractor. I'm not a government employee, and I essentially deliver services based on an agreed upon contract. So this type of care is really prevalent in healthcare in Canada. It was actually part of what was negotiated back in the 60s and 70s and 80s as Medicare was getting rolled out to varying degrees across the country. The physicians wanted to maintain their autonomy and they didn't want the government to be dictating too many aspects of healthcare. So that's why we have this kind of mixed model where a lot of our care is publicly financed, but privately delivered. 
There are, of course, some examples of publicly delivered care in Canada. In other provinces, a lot of hospitals are actually run by local or regional institutions, which technically are public. This does vary. But what is novel here is when we get into public delivery, we can either have nonprofit delivery or for-profit delivery. And the for-profit is when we start to see um, some issues potentially taking place, particularly if it is shareholder or investor owned, because then we can see some of the focus shifting away from caring for patients to actually being accountable to shareholders. Yeah. And, I, and this is going to make up a big part of the critique I want to get into later. So that's utterly crucial. But the, the big takeaway here being that, you know, we we can talk about whether or not we want public uh, care to be more more public, more not-for-profit, et cetera, et cetera. But the heart of the critique of the reform that Ford is proposing is the for-profit side, right? I mean, that seems to be the focus of a lot of, of the concern that this is ultimately meant to generate a profit and, the, and, and it sort of financializes uh, care rather than treats it as a public good. Yeah, exactly. I've heard the term the corporatization of medicine coming in, essentially treating medicine and healthcare as a commodity rather than as a necessary service. And you know, maybe there's room for innovation in certain aspects of medical care, maybe in creating some of the technologies and platforms. But when it comes to actually delivering healthcare, I get very wary of when we start introducing profits and particularly shareholders into the mix because of the history of evidence in other jurisdictions showing that patient safety can be compromised. Yeah, and and I think already it's worth noting. You know, people say, "Well, look, your your GP is is uh, you know a profit oriented enterprise. That person runs a business. It's publicly paid for, but it's privately delivered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." But even at that level, there seems to me to be an awful big difference between your family doctor who happens to run their own practice or have a partner and co run a practice, and institutional investors who run chains of clinics. Yeah. Exactly. The for-profit chain ownership, I think, is a higher risk situation. And, you know, that's not to say that every physician or every group of physicians who are running a for-profit clinic without shareholders involved doesn't sometimes have perverse incentives. Uh, But I think that the risk is just so much more magnified when you have the shareholders breathing down your neck, as opposed to the majority of clinicians who are trying to do their best to care for patients, make a living, pay their staff, pay the rent for their facility. <laughs> right. Okay. And so let, let's get into that point now, because Ford's plan has been criticized along a few lines, and I'd like to take a, f- a few of those in, in order. And I want to start with the, the for-profit clinics that he's proposing. Uh, we'll we'll ma- want to make a profit. This is axiomatic. It's an investment. You want to make a profit. You're not doing it out of the goodness of your heart. You're not doing it because care is a public good. You At least primarily, you're doing it because you want to make a profit. At the institutional investor level, uh, they'll be particularly concerned about this, and presumably part of that profit is going to come from scale. Uh, there's a couple of risks that seem to come from that. One is lean care, and the other is upselling. And I'm wondering how much of a concern each of these two things are. Yeah, I think they're absolute concerns. So whenever you're looking at making a profit, there's essentially two ways to do it. One is to generate increased revenue, basically charging more, asking more for your services. And this does tend to be the case. When we look at the BC WorkSafe program, which essentially was providing knee surgeries for injured workers, knee surgeries that occurred in for-profit facilities cost four times more than those that were delivered in the regular public hospitals. 
a difference of $3,200 versus $800. So we do see that sometimes these for-profit facilities have an incentive to set higher prices, which of course leads to more healthcare spending. Similarly, when they looked at MRI scans in the province, those that were done at for-profit facilities overall cost the government two times more. And oftentimes, these facilities negotiate contracts with the government to specifically ask for higher pay for the services they provide. So this actually leads to a lot of financial inefficiency. I'm not sure how the world came to this conclusion that for-profit always leads to greater efficiency. From what I've seen, it is not always the case. Now, the other way, of course, to make a profit, other than increasing your revenue, is to decrease your costs. And in healthcare, one of our biggest costs and expensive is our people, the actual staff who are providing care. So one way to decrease your costs is to run a really lean operation and to not have a lot of extra staff, which might work most of the time. But if something's going wrong, you really want to have some redundancy there. You really want to have some extra hands present. And this is a potential mechanism whereby we can see worse patient outcomes in some of these for-profit facilities. Now, that's not to say that you know, these places are, are death traps, not at all. Overall, I'm sure they deliver a lot of great care. People come out quite satisfied. But we have to keep in mind that whenever you introduce profit, it is a risk factor for worse care. So when there's so many other things that we could be doing to increase capacity within our public system, why are we turning towards a solution that at least seems a little bit riskier when it comes to patient health and outcomes? Ultimately, that's our entire goal with healthcare. So to have that as a potential compromise, I think is really concerning. Yeah, and there's this isn't just, you know, a bunch of lefties screaming into the void because they don't want the marketplace to exist. This there there is data to back up the risk factor points you made, right? You know, there's data out of the United Kingdom uh, showing that, you know, for-profit uh, uh, you know, uh, locations created higher generated higher risks than than public ones. We have the LTC experience here in Ontario. You're more likely to get sick and die and private LTCs than than not-for-profit or public, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we, there is data that shows that there are increased risks, risks that come with this model, right? Yeah, absolutely. Similarly, in the United States, when they've compared for-profit versus non-profit hospitals, all other things being equal, the for-profit hospitals tend to have slightly higher rates of mortality, but to a statistically significant amount. So again, it's not to say that everyone who goes into one of those hospitals is necessarily going to suffer a bad outcome, but the risk is present and it is higher. So this is something that we've seen within the United Kingdom, like you mentioned, within the United States, within long-term care in Canada. We're still honestly gathering data in Canada about what these independent for-profit surgical facilities risks are. Maybe they're less, maybe they're more, but I think we can extrapolate a little bit. We don't mm -hmm. have a lot of reason to believe that the situation in the UK or the US or in Canada with long-term care is necessarily going to be that different from what we're experiencing here. So I think it is really important that as this program is being rolled out, we evaluate it, we hold it to very high safety standards and essentially make sure that we're not creating these risky situations for patients. Yeah, and, and again, to be fair, just drawing a point that you just brought up, we're not talking about, you know, the data doesn't suggest that, well, look, you're going into these facilities, there's a 20, 30, 40% higher chance of a morbidity or 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 death. You know, it's we're talking a few percentage points here and there. 
Um, but I mean, two points I would bring to that. One is at scale, it's actually quite a lot of people. And two, um, wouldn't you rather minimize those numbers if it's your life and well-being we're talking about? I would rather not add a point or two or three points to my risk if if I could avoid it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, those are the conversations I have with people because I think sometimes this debate gets so polarized and people, you know, accuse us of saying that the sky is falling and sure the sky is not falling, but it's not a great plan. You know, if it were me or one of my family members, and if I were given the choice, would I rather have surgery at an independent for-profit clinic or in a public hospital? Every time I would personally choose a public hospital, even if I had to wait a bit longer. Now I recognize that people truly suffer on wait lists and we really do need to do things to tackle surgical wait lists in Canada. I do think that this plan, unfortunately, will likely not significantly tackle our current wait list because it adds more places to do care, but it doesn't provide more people to do care. And my worry is that by creating these independent, for-profit, shareholder-owned facilities, we're essentially going to be drawing away the staff, the doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers who would otherwise be providing services in the public hospital. So I do worry that for those who see this as a way to decrease wait lists, if you are waiting for surgery and you're in pain, I don't think this plan is going to do that much for you. And it's frustrating because healthcare, I think we can all safely say is in a crisis moment right now. We're facing absolute strain, both because of the pandemic and a variety of other factors. So even if this plan is neutral, the fact that it is not likely going to be actively helpful I think is really a waste of time and resources and we don't have time and resources to waste right now. So once again, you, you've anticipated my, my next point, which is fantastic (laughs) because it gives us a nice coherent structure, which, which I think people always appreciate. Uh, And that's poaching people from, from the public and not for profit side, uh, because it, it, you know, the Ford government has some, you know, such call them proto plans, call them half-ass plans, call them what you want. Um, some some notions about trying to fix the the HR problem that underlies so much of the of the crisis, um, but I haven't seen a sufficient uh, plan from the Ford government to fill the human resource gaps. And you would think that if you're going to try to expand the system, that would actually be the core of it. Um, you know, he's there's some talk about we're going to make it easier for folks to practice from out of province. Uh, a counterpoint to that is well, you just move the problem around. Um, but, but, you know, there still is a core HR problem, including lots of foreign trained nurses, for instance, who are not quickly moving through, uh, the Byzantine system of, of getting accredited here. So how much is it ultimately a, a human resource problem? Oh, I would say human resources is one of the biggest problems facing healthcare right now. And it's not even unique to healthcare. I think we can safely say that we are seeing labor shortages across multiple industries right now. There's various reasons for this. One of which in Canada is that we have an aging population. We have proportionally less people who are of a working age to participate in the labor force. So we're seeing that strain across multiple industries. But of course, that strain can be felt very acutely and I think can cause a lot of suffering in healthcare. And to be fair to Premier Ford and his government, this has been a long-standing problem. His government didn't create it. Unfortunately, I do think they could be doing more to deal with it. This idea of credentialing um, internationally trained nurses faster, I think, does make some sense. The idea of drawing people from other provinces and territories could be helpful for Ontario. But as you kind of alluded to, at the end of the day, 
we're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. There's only so many healthcare providers in Canada, in the world. I understand that Premier Ford is doing his best to draw people to Ontario, but we will just ultimately end up worsening the situation in other provinces and territories or in other jurisdictions in the world. Ideally, we would be able to snap our fingers and have a lot of other doctors or nurses available to participate in healthcare, but unfortunately, healthcare providers don't grow on trees. And this is not a flex, but it took me four years of undergrad, four years of med school, and then six years of fellowship in order to be trained to practice pediatric emergency medicine. Some training paths are even longer. It's hard to train up healthcare providers quickly. And of course, our training does take time. A lot of what we do is particularly specialized in high risk. So we need some time to train and ensure people are competent. So I don't know if we're going to be able to solve our health human resources crisis just by drawing more people into the system. This is absolutely something we need to do. We need to reduce barriers for people to practice healthcare. But I think really where major impact is, is looking at delivering our care more efficiently. These are things that I think are more concrete that would result in more tangible wins right now rather than waiting 12 or 15 years to make, you know, more pediatric emergency doctors or whatever the case may be. I have to say, as someone who went through the the pediatric uh, care system, uh, I appreciate the the long lead time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I, I'm glad. I, I, I hope the pediatric system did a good job. It for, saved my life. It saved my life as it happens. Oh. I was, uh, yeah, I was a uh, a bit of a risky case back in the 1980s, but uh, the uh, it was Sick Kids Hospital, incidentally, that that did it um, with a pretty tricky surgery back then. And so uh, here I am today, which I think you know that means that there are folks out there who I'm sure will be very, as I am very thankful to Sick Kids, and probably a few who um, are, are a bit more ambivalent when it comes to my case. But here I am. <laughs> thank years. you for sharing that. I'm years sure that later. honestly, it means a lot to I think anybody practicing in healthcare to hear about these impacts that they've been able to have, or even that the profession collectively has been able to have. I think during a time of high burnout, it's just really wonderful to hear that people you know appreciate um, the care that they've been provided and they've been able to live healthy, successful lives. <laughs> oh, yes. I Well, I, I think about it all the time, incidentally, because, I, you know, it was a very close call. I mean, we, you know, it's you, you I, I was four or five years old. It was a kidney valve thing and a, a urethral, uterine, uterine valve. Is that what, what's it called? You can tell oh, yeah. I, I think about bits and pieces of it, but I, as a kid, I didn't know a ton. Um, but um you you have flashes of these moments because you know you you remember being in the hospital you remember being out of the hospital you remember being scared you remember being in the room you remember you know this and that so just these flashes of memories uh, but they they stick with you but all these years later the deep sense of of gratitude because uh, had had it had I had worse physicians worse surgeons or had it been you know several years earlier who knows where I'd be so it's it's a nice perspective generating exercise <laughs> um, that I try to practice. Um, okay, well, I want I want to come back to to solutions now mm -hmm. because uh, it doesn't serve anybody to treat this as uh, an insoluble crisis. It's a crisis, but there are solutions, and I think it it it's complicated. But I also think we sometimes overcomplicate it by just assuming, well, if there is something out there, it must be some genius idea no one's thought of. There are things that people have thought of, and you've talked about these before, and I want to get into them in turn. Um, you, you've mentioned a few, 
let's start with this a centralized referral intake system. I mean, what is that and how could that help things clear up the, the backlog? Oh, goodness. So this is so crucial. And I think it is so imperative that people in Canada understand how nonsensical a lot of our current referral processes are right now. So first off, a lot of our referral processes are done by fax machine, uh, very analog, relatively <laughs> slow. Studies have shown that referrals that move on the electronic system are faster. It's 2023 now. We absolutely need to be looking to moving away from fax machines or more analog methods of referrals where items can get lost. But this centralized referral is so simple. So right now, if my family doctor wants to refer me to a specialist, she will likely refer me to a specialist that she knows of that's working in the region. She might not know if that specialist has the shortest wait time. She might not know if that specialist is the best person to deliver care for my particular problem. So what we see is a lot of bounced referrals, a lot of people waiting longer than they need to be. And a centralized referral system Essentially, the primary care provider or whoever's making that referral would refer to a group of specialists. That way, the patient referrals can be triaged according to their need and complexity. They can be sent to the best specialist for the job and also the specialist with the shortest waiting list. So this is something that has been proven in Canada and around the world to significantly shorten wait times. There is a study published just a year or two ago in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that looked at multiple papers that were published about centralized intake systems and how they significantly reduce wait times. And we actually have Canadian data because this has been implemented in many local areas across the country, but it has not been scaled up and is not available everywhere in a coordinated fashion. So this is something that we absolutely could do to improve healthcare today. I think the reason why we haven't done it is because there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to healthcare. You've got the individual physicians who are practicing, you've got some municipal leadership, provincial leadership, federal leadership, and it's very hard sometimes to determine who's wearing what hat. Mm -hmm. And because we as physicians are often practicing independently, sometimes it's not easy to draw everyone together and to coordinate this. But if we could spend some time coordinating it, it would make our referral system so much smoother. And a lot of people will realize this. If you think of the bank or even at the grocery store, you don't wait in line for a specific teller. You wait in line and then you go to the first available teller. Same thing at the grocery store. I think Whole Foods practiced this in the United States and significantly showed that their grocery wait times decreased. So it's something that we absolutely could implement in healthcare today. I recently had a, a doctor talk to me about this and said, well, you know, we, we could refer you to a specialist, but they're just sending them back as um, impossible to to fulfill. And I think, like, well, could you maybe find someone else? <laughs> it's funny because this idea just makes such intuitive sense. And it's every time I hear it, I mean, I first heard it from you, but every time I hear it now or think about it, my, my thought is, well, why why in, in the hell aren't we doing it? And it strikes me listening to you that a huge part of the crisis is a crisis of of decentralization and coordination. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there needs to be a lot more coordination of healthcare, and, and it is admittedly very complex, but things like the centralized intake need to be done. And right now with our current system, where we're all really practicing in our silos, that makes it very tricky. Mm -hmm. And to jump back to Premier Ford's plan to contract out some of these surgeries to standalone for-profit facilities. My worry is that this actually increases some of the silos we have in healthcare. 
Um, maybe these places won't be able to share their records with local hospitals. If somebody gets surgery at these facilities and they're closing at 5 p.m. and you have a complication after hours, you might need to go to your local emergency department. Will the emergency department be able to see the records of what happened? Will they be able to contact the surgeons or any staff from these facilities? So I think a better plan, if we did want to contract out some of these surgeries, is to make sure that they're, whenever possible, affiliated with a local hospital or regional um, board that can essentially make sure that there's some interoperativity of both the medical records, of the staff. I think that would make the plan a lot safer. So we don't need more silos in healthcare. We need a lot more centralization, a lot more coordination, both in the referral process and in other methods. Uh, well, so, so so speaking of that, I mean, uh, another potential solution uh, is more community surgery clinics that are not for profit that are associated with hospitals. This is an idea that you've talked about. This is an idea that uh, Dr. Robert Bell has talked about a lot recently, um, you know, essentially saying, well, yeah, we should be having more specialized surgery clinics out in the community that are affiliated with hospitals. Um, but we just want them to be not for profit. Uh, you know, why, maybe I'm being a little jejun here, but why not just do that and just say skip the for profit model altogether? We say, yeah, let's have these efficient surgeries out there. Let's have them, these specialized surgeries out there, but just make them not for profit or public. You know, I think that's a great question, Dave. And it's really hard for me to know <laughs> why our provincial leaders didn't go I in that know. direction. <laughs> yeah. I have a theory. <laughs> uh, my theory is that when you have nonprofit centers, shareholders do not make money. There it is. And <laughs> I think that that is, I can't say for sure, but to me as an outsider looking in, that is the only advantage I can really foresee of for-profit centers versus nonprofit is that some shareholders make more money in the for-profit mm -hmm. setting. And it's really disappointing if that is a factor that has been used to decide on this model for delivering healthcare. Because there's no reason we couldn't say, well, let's have these clinics, uh, these these surgery, uh, not-for-profit surgery centers. Uh, let, let's just build them. I mean, presumably one of the, the, the concerns is they are capital intensive and someone has to front the investment money to to build them. Um, and I mean, we pay one way or the other. This is, this is the trick though. You pay one way or the other, <laughs> because mm -hmm. you, someone's got to pay and it's going to be you in one way or another. Um, but maintaining the public good delivers better care cheaper. So even if there's, there's still a capital investment, it's ultimately uh, cheaper for, for you and for the province. And, and I, I, I wonder how much of this is just the province say, well, we don't want to have to spend the capital to, to build these things. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's a fair point. Having the investors and shareholders play in means that maybe there's a little bit less capital up front. The government's entering into a contract where they can get businesses or corporations to share some of the costs in the short term. That might be advantageous. But as you said, in the long term, a lot of the time we end up paying more for procedures that occur in these facilities. And in the long run, we might actually end up costing the health system more. Any complications that result from these facilities ultimately will probably be dealt with by our emergency departments and public hospitals. So maybe we're just shifting the cost down the road. And when you've got a four-year political election cycle, four <laughs> years, give or take, to be fair, I could see how this would be a popular thing to do. But I do worry, and it's 
not just been this current government. I think it's every government to an extent has an incentive to kick the can down the road and to almost absolve themselves of some of the responsibility of healthcare and for shoring up long-term investment in our public system that will pay dividends down the road because they may not see it during their political term. And I think that's something that we as Canadians need to be more wary of and demand more long-term vision and investment in our public health care to increase capacity in the public system. Um, we don't need people to kick the can down the road. That's partly why we've got into this situation. And I also wanted to delve into to some other things, I mean, centralized intakes are great, but there's so many other things we could mm -hmm. do to improve our system. I really don't want anyone walking away from this conversation to think that I'm in defense of the status quo. Right. I want to make it very clear as somebody who is a user of the healthcare system and working in the healthcare system full time. We absolutely need to change. The status quo is indefensible. It is problematic. We need to reduce wait times. We need to improve capacity in our public system. That being said, a lot of the suggested solutions from current governments are likely not the way to get there. One thing that I learned recently, which really shocked me, is that a lot of our hospitals actually have caps on the number of surgeries and procedures they can do. And these are set and negotiated with a lot of the payers, so primarily the provincial governments or, or other funding bodies, to allow for more predictable hospital budgets. But as you can imagine, it really de-incentivizes efficiencies. So one of the ways to increase OR capacity that I've seen come up is to run operating rooms more so in the evenings and weekends. But in speaking with various leaders in healthcare and hospital executives, People have said, you know, we don't even run our ORs at max capacity Monday to Friday, eight to four, nine to five. Even within those regular working hours, there's not the incentive to do the maximum number of surgeries that they could because they have these caps and they won't get paid essentially for doing surgeries beyond that. So if I were in hmm. a provincial leadership position, I think that would be a relatively easy thing to tackle. You know, the province would pay more for these surgeries, but the surgeries would get done. It would be in a financially efficient manner in hospitals and facilities that already exist, that already have the operating rooms and infrastructure and staff. So I think that's probably one of the easiest things we could do to increase our surgical capacity literally tomorrow. And and what about uh, community uh, or, or rather um, uh, care teams? That that you, this is something you've also talked about the, that bring together different medical professionals under under a single umbrella. Yeah, so having multidisciplinary teams, both in the surgical setting and in other medical specialties, has been shown to reduce wait times. So, what are these teams? A multidisciplinary team involves a number of healthcare professionals, so not just a physician or surgeon working in isolation, um, working with other people like physiotherapists and dietitians. So the way that we've seen it play out really well in surgery, for example, is if I have hip pain and I'm referred to an orthopedic surgeon, there's a long wait list, you can see a physiotherapist before the surgical appointment. And a lot of the time, the physiotherapist can initiate treatments and exercises that might actually even avoid the need for surgery altogether. So this is great. It significantly reduces wait times. It can also help triage patients to make sure that those who are in the most dire situations are able to see the surgeons more quickly. And it can also prevent surgery, which is great as a patient. It's great for the healthcare system. 
And what's unfortunate right now is that a lot of healthcare providers who are not physicians are not covered under our public health plans. So to see a physiotherapist right now, it's typically either through private insurance or through your out-of-pocket payments, unless you do have specific qualifications for coverage. So expanding public coverage for these multidisciplinary teams is really crucial. And another piece where I think we're feeling a lot of strain in healthcare, both around Canada, but also in Ottawa, is a lack of access to primary care. And primary care physicians are the absolute foundation of our healthcare system. They absolutely need more funding and support. The way we've structured our system right now is that you often need to see a primary care provider before you can even start the referral or wait for a specialist. So if you're waiting to see a primary care provider or can't find one at all, that just prolongs your wait and increases so much more difficulty in access to care. And this multidisciplinary team model can work really well in the primary care environment. Right now, we're asking family doctors to do a lot and to be all things to all people. A lot of family physicians are doing work that truthfully could be really well done by social workers who are providing counseling and mental health care, by psychologists, by dietitians who can provide really thorough nutrition counseling, by specialized nurse educators who might be able to provide counseling of chronic disease management like COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or diabetes. These are all hats that right now are largely worn by family doctors, which can really lead to a lack of access to physician care. So as much as possible, we need to encourage our provinces and territories to fund models that allow for multidisciplinary teams, both in primary care and amongst specialists and consultants. It's, it's you know, one of the things I find tricky about this discussion is that uh, when, when you hear the solutions laid out like that, it seems like a, a competent government that wanted to put care first as a public good could put together a comprehensive plan that would in the mid to long term relieve a lot of pressure in the system. And and to me, I, I'm a big believer in Hanlon's razor that you shouldn't attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, it's often a little bit of both um, alongside a sort of um, particular devotion to the, the cult of, of profits. And uh, it's hard to look at this government's reforms or proposed reforms and see anything but a, but a mix of those things and think, well, this isn't going to go well. So I'm curious, though, where you see this going in five years on the, on the current course. Uh, does it get better? Does it get worse? Does it stay the same? You know, I think if our main and only solution to surgical wait times is to contract out to these for-profit clinics, if I were to anticipate, I'd say at best, we're in a neutral situation because we're providing places for people to get care closer to home. Sure, that's great. We're expanding sites to do surgery, but because we haven't actually looked at efficiency and because we haven't actually really expanded the number of people who can provide those services, I think at best, it's going to be neutral, maybe a little bit worse if we are going to see more complications, more risks to patients, and also higher cost for the same procedures that could be done in other areas. So I'm not too optimistic. I mean, as a pediatrician, I think we're kind of naturally inclined to be optimistic. I'm not too optimistic about this plan. What I am optimistic about, though, is that there's been 
a number of people who are looking into solutions beyond this, because I think a lot of us recognize that this is an imperfect solution. Even if you are more predisposed to a free market philosophy, I think a lot of people recognize that healthcare is complex and there's no silver bullet. And what's more is that these for-profit standalone surgical institutions are not new or innovative. They exist in other provinces, which still have issues with wait times. We actually have a small number of them currently operating in Ontario right now. And we still have some issues with wait times, et cetera. So clearly this is not the silver bullet. And I think people are turning to look elsewhere for answers. And there's still a lot of things we could do. Um, another relatively simple solution is looking at integrating virtual care and electronic consultations into our system. So one thing that's been really effective in my local region of Ottawa is an e-consult service where if a family physician or other healthcare provider has a question for a specialist, what they used to have to do was refer their patient, you know, presumably by fax to see the specialist in six to nine months and the specialist would assess the patient and answer the question. What this e-consult service allows us to do is for the family physician to essentially post a question electronically, a specialist will respond typically in less than 24 to 48 hours. And the specialist can help to determine if the patient actually needs to see a specialist or if they can provide guidance to the family physician to manage the patient's care. And this has incredibly high rates of satisfaction amongst literally everyone, mm -hmm. the primary care providers, the specialists, the patients. It's just such a great and efficient way to deliver healthcare and really expanding these e-consult services everywhere is crucial because they do exist in varying degrees in different provinces and locations. But once again, it's an issue of scale. It's an issue of siloing, an issue of coordination in healthcare. But I want everyone to take away that there are so many things we could be doing to improve healthcare right now. I've listed a small number. A lot of this is informed based on my own research, my own perspectives. But I'm sure there's many other things that could be done because their healthcare is so vast. And speaking with different healthcare professionals, I'm sure would provide a whole host of other solutions. I do get really worried sometimes when we see policymakers making decisions about healthcare without having that like direct consultation with the mm -hmm. users of the system, the patients, without consulting healthcare providers who are working day in and day out in the system. That's really the best way to think of novel solutions rather than taking what is frankly a quite tired solution that already exists and trying to paint it as innovative. It's funny because the problem on aggregate is deeply complicated and obviously uh, implementing solutions can be complicated but the solutions themselves seem both uh, you know obvious and intuitive once once you've heard them i can't tell you the number of times i've had to go see a specialist who would you know again it was six months nine months a year there's deep anxiety there's uncertainty you get there it's 15 minutes it's 20 minutes like you're, you're fine go home <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and the immediate thought is like, oh, couldn't we have done this over the phone six months ago? But what I'm hearing from you is, yes, you could have more or less. It's the healthcare equivalent of this meeting could have been an email, you yeah. know, <laughs> which I think is frustrating for all of us. But when you add in all the anxiety and, and worries surrounded around healthcare and waiting for that care and the suffering that can result, it just becomes even more indefensible <laughs> than yeah. having an annoying meeting. <laughs> Oh boy. Well, I mean, you know, I'm choosing for the takeaway of this conversation to be that there are things we can do to make things a lot better, which which it makes me a little bit hopeful. If we get the right people, 
the right champions, the right politicians, in theory, we could we could fix this problem then, right? It's not completely intractable. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been so encouraged. And I think one of the silver linings of Premier Ford's announcement is that the media is looking into other solutions. Because again, everyone recognizes there's a problem. I think there's some healthy skepticism around the current plan. And I've seen more frequently reflected the media some of these other solutions. I would love to hear more talk about centralized referrals and multidisciplinary teams and reducing surgical procedure caps from the actual policymakers. But getting the word out there amongst our public and amongst the media, I think will eventually, hopefully, trickle up to some of those policymakers too. Well, hope springs eternal. Uh, that brings us to time. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. This was fantastic. And I think extremely educational for a lot of folks. And it certainly has been for me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Dave. It's always nice chatting with you. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing here to help get the message out. Thank you very much. And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And to all of you listening, wherever you may be listening, this is a great reminder that uh, this is a problem we can solve. You know who to write. Write to your MPP, write to your MP, write to your prime minister, write to your first minister. Uh, Write to everybody. Just sit down, write. And if you end up with uh, a repetitive stress injury, don't worry, we'll get to you in uh, six to eight months. Thanks again. We'll see you back here in two weeks.